You are listening to audio from New Life Foursquare. For more information about our church, you can visit us online at newlifefoursquare.org. All right, so a woman invited some people to dinner. And at the table, she turned, her, she turned to her six-year-old daughter who was there. And she said, honey, would you like to say the blessing over the food? And the daughter protested. And she said, well, no, because I don't know what I would say. And so the mom said, well, just say what you hear mommy say. So the little girl said, okay. Bowed her head and she said, dear Lord, why on earth did I invite all these people to dinner? (laughs) Some of you feel like that. You just haven't had a chance to express it. There's a pastor that was speaking to a group of second graders about the resurrection of Jesus. And one student asked him, what did Jesus You know, teacher, what did Jesus say right after he came out of the grave? Did he say anything? And the pastor explained that the Gospels don't tell us what he said right after he came out of the grave. But the hand of a little girl in the class went up and she said, I I think I know what he said. And they said, what do you think he said? And she said, (laughs) ta-da! Marty, a little boy who was in church one Easter Sunday with his mother Doris, he was sitting in church, like some of you are, kids are, and uh, he started feeling sick. And he said, Mom, can we leave now? She's like, no, 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 the service isn't over yet. She says, no, Mom, because I, I feel like I'm going to throw up. And so the mom said to him, okay, so go out the front door, or don't, don't go through the front door. Go out the back door, go around the back side of the church, and throw up behind a bush. Okay, this is not recommended here. Okay, this is a joke. <laughs> After only 60 seconds, the kid comes back to his pew and sits alongside his mother. And she's like, did you throw up? And he's like, yeah, mom. And she goes, well, how did you get back here so quickly? It takes a long time to get to the other side of the church and around the, by the, where the bushes are. How did you get back so quickly? He says, oh, well, mom, I walked outside the back of the church, and I didn't have to go outside the church because they have a box right in front of the door that says, for the sick. <laughs> he, he, he threw up in the, in the offering. <laughs> Whatever. Ha, 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 ha. Why all the jokes, Pastor? Why all the jokes? Listen, in the early days of the Christian church, the week that began Easter Sunday was one continuous feast. It was a week of intense happiness and joy. Uh, they called it, the, the Monday after Easter, they called it, they used to call it Bright Monday. And uh, it was basically supposed to, the, after the, the, week, the 40 days of heaviness, and intense, like this intensity of the Lenten season, right? Easter was the beginning of joy and laughter. And this custom began to be embraced by the Orthodox Christian traditions, the Catholic traditions, and even some Protestant traditions. But it was rooted, this idea that Easter was a time of laughter and celebration and even joking. Okay, This was rooted in the creative reflections of early church theologians like Augustine who mused that God played the greatest joke on the devil by raising Jesus from the dead. (laughs) I mean, as in, the resurrection was God getting the last laugh on hell, death, and the devil. And early theologians had a word for this in Latin. It was risus pascals, translated the Easter laugh. So early Christianity picked up on this theme of humor and laughter and this idea that because God laughs at death, so can we. And so the church carried this tradition on, and they couldn't celebrate Easter Monday, of course, because, you know, everybody works on Monday. So they celebrated the Sunday after Easter, and they called it 
Holy Humor Sunday. And on that day, they would play games, they would sing songs, they would dance, they would have picnics, they would play pranks and practical jokes on the pastors. Don't get any bad ideas, okay? So they would do this as, holy, as a celebration. So today, today, we're going to draw from that tradition because, frankly, the Lenten season is kind of a, it's kind of a heavy, serious, and maybe a little depressing season, right? But listen, some of you in this room, I would venture to guess, most of you in this room don't observe Lent, and that's fine. That's okay. But you've, you've got some heaviness in your soul because of stuff you've been going through. Problems, issues, family issues, job issues, financial problems. I, I, I get it. You bring it with you, and you've got heaviness in your soul because of it. I mean, I've been pastoring for you know, a number of years now, and nothing surprises me when it comes to the stuff that weighs heavy on your soul and on my soul. I mean, there's stuff that's going on in our world. That's, that's no laughing matter. I understand that. But this morning, this Easter Sunday, would you let me, would you join me as I push back a little bit on the heaviness? Tell the person next to you, lighten up. Lighten up. Enjoy the joke. Enjoy the joke. <laughs> the resurrection was the greatest joke that was ever played on what we thought was the most powerful force and dominating reality in the universe, death and the devil. And God looks at these two and is laughing. You ever want to make God laugh? Some of you heard this. Ever want to make God laugh? Just tell him your plans. I got another one. I got another one. Ever want to make God laugh? Tell him the devil's plans. Tell him that death has won. Tell him that you don't think you can ever get past your grief. Tell him that you don't think you'll ever be free from sin's power or from all those struggles that you struggle with. Tell him that you don't think that anything in your life can change for the better. And respectfully, he will laugh at that. And he will invite you to laugh with him. Have you, ever, have you ever heard that saying that laughter is the best medicine? Yeah, in fact, like this is scientifically proven, man. Um, they've studied the fact that laughter has a positive impact on one's overall health. And uh, those who are suffering, especially from chronic illness, you know, studies have shown laughter helps reduce pain, decrease stress-related hormones, right? prolong life. But see, with all due respect to that fact, this way of talking about laughter only delays the inevitable. Human laughter can help you prolong life, but it cannot stop death. However, here on Easter Sunday, I'm here to tell you folks, I've got good news. What human laughter cannot do, <laughs> the laughter of God can. There may be all kinds of reasons to laugh, but God's last laugh is resurrection. And God's last laugh is our salvation. The resurrection of Jesus is the laughter of God. It's God's greatest joke on the devil. God gets the, he gets the last laugh. Now, how many of you know what that actually means? This is kind of an idiomatic expression in English, the last laugh. Let me, let me define it for you just in case, all right? When you look up the dictionary and you find 
what, is it, what does the last laugh mean? You'll, you'll find these couple, at least a couple definitions. It means to succeed when others thought you would not. Okay, as in, let me use it in a sentence. She was fired from the company last year, but she had the last laugh when she was hired by their main rival for twice the salary. Get it? Okay, here's another definition of the last laugh. The satisfaction of ultimate triumph or success, especially after having been scorned or regarded as a failure. As in, let me use it in a sentence. The Lakers have had several losing seasons over the past few years. But they will have the last laugh when they sign LeBron and Paul George all in one season. Come on, all you ballers in the room. <laughs> Let me make it really clear. On Friday afternoon, they nailed the Son of God to the cross. And all of hell and all of humanity thought the Messiah had failed in his mission. That the movement that he tried to start is dead with him on that cross. But God had the last laugh when on the third day, he arose from the grave. Get it? The greatest joke ever played on the devil. You know what? Maybe we should call it Easter Fool's Day. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. For God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believed. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Happy Easter fools. He's got the last laugh. Have you ever noticed that in the Bible and in most jokes... Three is an important number. Three. Important things come in threes. Like three establishes a pattern. Three is like the number of uh, completeness, right? We confess our belief in the Trinity. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The threeness. God, or Jesus, often uses three, the number three, parables, in his parables. But have you also noticed that in many jokes, the punchline comes... On, number, on the third person, right? The third person brings the punchline. It's like those three fools that died and found themselves before the pearly gates in heaven. And St. Peter says, okay, you can enter heaven, but you need to answer one simple question. And the question is, what is Easter? And so the first fool says, oh, that's easy. Easter, that's the, that's the holiday in November where they bake turkey and they give thanks for everything. <clears throat> Wrong. So he looks at the second fool and the second fool says, no, 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 no. Easter is that holiday in December when we put up a nice tree, we buy gifts for everyone and we share, and we celebrate the birth of Christ. <clears throat> Wrong again. It's not Easter. So he, Peter's like, okay. Looks at the third fool and the, and the third fool says, I think I know what Easter is. Easter it's the Christian holiday that coincides with the Jewish celebration of Passover. It's when Jesus and his disciples had the Last Supper, and then later he was betrayed and turned over to the Romans to be crucified. And the Romans, you know, put a crown of thorns on him and beat him and hung him on a cross and stabbed him in the side, and he was buried in a nearby cave in a tomb that was sealed off by a large boulder. And Peter's like, oh, I think you've got it. But the third fool continued. And then every year, that boulder 
is moved aside so that Jesus can come out. And if he sees his shadow, there will be six more weeks of winter. (laughs) It's always the third person that provides the punchline, isn't it? And it's interesting because when you look at the Gospel of Luke, you find three accounts of people being raised from the dead in the Gospel of Luke. It's almost like you can see God setting up his joke on death and the devil through these accounts. I want to show you, and I want to show you what we learn from each of them. The first account comes in Luke chapter 7, where we begin to see that God is setting us up. Tell the person next to you, it's a setup. It's a setup. God is setting you up to move from tragedy to triumph. He's setting you up for something good. In Luke chapter 7, we see this account of Jesus raising a widow's son from the dead. It says this. It says, soon afterward, Jesus went with his disciples to the village of Nain, and a large crowd followed him, and a funeral procession was coming out as he approached the village gate. And a young man who had died was a widow's only son, and a large crowd from the village was with her. And the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. Don't cry, he said. Now, pause for a moment and just think about that. Like, that's borderline offensive. Like, imagine you were sitting at the funeral of your only son, and someone came up to you and said, don't cry. You'd be like, you know what? Just a nice, you know, tender condolence will do. You don't need to tell me how, I want, how you want me to feel or how I should or should not feel in this moment. What do you mean don't cry? I lost my only son. But you see, Jesus knows this is a setup. He's setting her up for something good. He's setting her up for a surprise. He's not saying don't express your sadness. He's saying get ready. I'm about to turn your sadness into something good. I'm about to surprise you with the supernatural. I'm about to move you from tragedy to triumph. Life is going to get the last laugh here, my dear lady. And so what does Jesus do? He walks over to the coffin, and he touches it, and the bearers stop, and he says to the young man who is dead, he speaks to the cadaver, and he says, young man, I tell you, get up. The dead boy sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Great fear swept the crowd, swept the crowd, and they praised God. A mighty prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people today. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder if God might be setting you up today for something good. Could it be, could it be that sin and sadness, shame and sorrow, the stuff you're struggling with today, that God is using that to set you up for something supernatural, for a supernatural display of his grace? of his mercy, of his deliverance, of his rescue, and of his love? Could it be? I think so. My Bible says in Romans that where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. This is set up, folks. This doesn't mean that we should sin more so so we can get more grace, all right? It means that when you realize just how futile and empty that life of sin you've been living is, that there is overflowing grace getting ready to be poured out on your life when you are ready to invite it in. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. 
He's going to move you. He's going to move you. He's going to set you up to move from tragedy to triumph. And then there's another episode in the very next chapter where you see the second episode of somebody being raised from the dead in Luke's gospel. And from this episode, we see that God wants to move us from fear, actually through fear, into faith. You remember the story of the synagogue ruler named Jairus? Jairus was a, you know, he would be an equivalent of a local church pastor. Probably well-loved and respected in the community. And he comes up to Jesus one day and he says, Jesus, my daughter is sick. He actually falls on his feet, his, his knees, and he begs Jesus, my daughter is sick. My 12-year-old daughter is sick. Come and heal her, Jesus. So Jesus goes with Jairus. And remember the story? On his way, there was this woman who had a uh, medical condition where it caused, that caused her to bleed perpetually. And she reasons to herself, I can, if I can just touch the tip of Jesus' garment, then something good might happen. So she works her way through the crowd, right? And she ends up touching the, the hem of Jesus' garment. And in that instant, power flows out from Jesus, touches her, heals her. She goes, wow, I'm healed. But Jesus decides in that moment to recognize her faith. And he tells her, he says, stop, who touched me, right? And so he decides it's important right now, even though I've got kind of a an urgent matter in front of me, I'm going to stop and recognize this woman's face. So he does. Now, for Jesus, this is great. For the woman, this is great. But for Jairus, he's, he's probably sitting there going, hang on. Like, hurry it up, Jesus. We got to, my daughter's dying. And for him, he probably saw that moment as an inconvenient distraction from what he thought Jesus was supposed to do. But listen, in this moment, Jairus' worst fears look like they're coming true. Because a messenger arrives and he says to Jairus, your daughter's dead. And it's not, your daughter's dead, Jairus, so tell Jesus to hurry up because we heard one chapter ago that he raised a widow's son from the dead, so maybe he can do the same for your daughter. It wasn't that kind of, your daughter's dead. It was, your daughter's dead, watch this. There's no use in troubling the teacher now, right? Like, it's one thing to get the facts. It's another thing for the facts to breed hopelessness and futility and uselessness. It's no use troubling Jesus. It's no use expecting him to do anything for you now, Jairus. It's no use going through all the trouble to get him to your home. See, you know when death is really at work. When you start to feel futility, when you start to feel pointlessness, like, you know what? This isn't going anywhere. This isn't working. I'm way too far behind. I'm too broken. I'm too messed up for anything good to happen in my life. I've made too many mistakes. I've got too many regrets. I've broken down way too many bridges. And my life is full of regret. Jairus' fear here is not that his daughter was dead. Jairus' fear is that his faith, whatever faith he had left in God's healing power, that his faith in God's goodness had actually become pointless. Have you ever been there? I, I tried, Pastor. I tried going to church. I tried reading the Bible. I tried trusting God. I tried praying for healing. I tried praying for deliverance. I tried praying that God would send me that special someone. But now I'm stuck with this. I've tried, it hasn't happened. 
I'm still sick. I'm still in debt. I'm still lonely. And it's easy, isn't it, to go from it's no use seeking Jesus, going to church, going through the trouble and inconvenience of growing spiritually. It's easy to go from there to even, even greater futility. Listen, whatever little faith that you have in Jesus is not pointless. It's not useless. It's not futile. When you place that faith, whatever little faith it might be, Jesus said it's a mustard seed-sized faith. Put it into Jesus, and it won't be pointless. So watch what Jesus does. He gets to the house, and it says he had heard what happened, and he went to Jairus, and he said, Jairus, don't be afraid. Don't be, I know what you're thinking, Jairus. I know that you think this is pointless right now. Don't fear your faith. I'm about to move you through your fears into faith. She goes, just believe, and she will be healed. So Jesus gets to the, um, the house. It says, when they arrived at the house, Jesus wouldn't let anyone go with them except Peter, John, and James, and the little girl's father and mother. The house was filled with people weeping and wailing, because back then, you could pay people to weep and wail for all your, you know, for your deceased. So people are weeping and wailing, and the house is filled with all this noise, and Jesus comes in and goes, stop weeping. He goes, she's only, she's not dead. <laughs> and they're like, no, no, no. Jesus, they, it's just, they laughed at him. No, you don't get it, Jesus. We know what dead is. You don't know what dead is. Our definition of death is when she's no longer breathing. Her heart is no longer beating. She's not responsive. She's dead. Jesus says, no, she's asleep. I love that. It's like he, he doesn't just heal this girl. He redefines death. It's just sleep. <laughs> it says here, the crowd laughed at him. They all thought, they all knew she had died. But Jesus, remember, he had just put the crowd out. He, said, he took her by the hand and said in a loud voice, my child, get up. And at that moment, her life returned, and she immediately stood up. And then Jesus said, give her something to eat. Give her something to eat. Why? 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 Was she hungry? Because, you know, is that what happens in the afterlife or in between the afterlife and his life? Do you get hungry? No, because when a dead person gets up, people in that culture would be like, it's a ghost. No, it's not a ghost. She is a human being. She can eat real food. <laughs> she gets up, and she's alive. I don't know what you have lost to death, my friends, but in the name of Jesus Christ, I declare over you that life is returning. Life is returning over your dreams, over your hopes, over your plans that seem to have died. And maybe, listen, some of you need to let those dreams die because they weren't from God in the first place. Some of you need to let the relationship die because it wasn't in God's will for your life in the first place. I'm not talking about married couples now, okay? Talk about all about you single folk who are, you know, you know, available. Facebook official and whatnot. <laughs> Whatever it is you've lost to death, the promise of Jesus is that life will return if you invite him into the situation. So, watch this. Her parents are overwhelmed, and Jesus, this is strange, he insists that they not tell anybody about what has happened. Why would Jesus insist to keep this a secret? And there's some, you know, 
curious and plausible arguments for this thing that you see in the Gospels they call the messianic secret where Jesus does some really sensational thing and then he goes, shh, be quiet, don't say anything about this. They, they call it the messianic secret. Well, I got my own opinion about this. Jesus is setting up the joke. Jesus is setting up the greatest joke ever pulled on hell's power. So don't say anything yet because I don't want you to give away the punchline. Because watch this. All the people that Jesus raises from the dead in the Gospels, they live only to die again. That makes sense? When he raised Lazarus, Lazarus died again. This little girl died again. The, little, the only son from Nain died again. They weren't real, authentic resurrections. They were miraculous, if we would call it restorations, or maybe miraculous resuscitations. But they were not authentic resurrections. It's like death was doing its thing. And death was drawing this little 12-year-old girl into its clutches. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, Jesus goes, hey, let me go. Like, come back. Not, not quite yet. And death is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Death is irritated. Death is like impatient. What are you doing? All right, you can have her for a while, but I know I get her back. <laughs> Folks, this is a setup. God is telling a joke. And in Luke's gospel, it starts with a widow's only son being raised. And then it moves to a 12-year-old girl being raised from the sleep of death. But now we come to God's punchline. From Luke 21. Very early in the morning, on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb. Taking the spices they had prepared. Because you see, as the story goes... Joseph of Arimathea, and I think even Nicodemus was involved in taking Jesus' body after he had been removed from the cross and placing it in Joseph's tomb. In other words, two men were in charge of a dead body to get it ready for burial. And the women would have nothing to do with that because <laughs> they knew how to get a body ready. And here's another thing about this. This is a really interesting, well, not even interesting, this is one of the proofs that the stories of the resurrection you find in the gospel are authentic, okay? Because in the ancient world of this time, a woman's testimony would not have been even admissible in a court of law. You could not trust what a woman would tell you. I know what some of you are thinking right now. Stop it. Stop it. Just stop. <laughs> Especially in those days, right? So, if in fact these resurrection stories that Luke and the other gospel writers record are falsified, are not true, that they were writing this story to somehow revive the movement that had died with Jesus on the cross, right? If they were writing a false narrative... Why would you write into the story somebody that no one would ever trust if they told you? It would be like, well, it would be like me saying, okay, I want you to record, you know, what happened to me, you know, years ago. And I want it to be, you know, I want it to be false because I want my children to think, you know, something good about me. And so I'm going to, you know, have you guys 
falsified, but I'm going you know, to write into it the, the, the people that are, that, that are most credible. You would not say in that, in that ancient world, the women said it, therefore believe it. No way. You would have read this resurrection story and go, you know, who, who's there to believe it? The reason why women are written into the story, folks, the reason why it's written this way is because this is exactly how it happened. <laughs> so they come to the tomb. They take spices they had prepared. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance, and they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. And as they stood there, puzzled, Two men suddenly appeared to them clothed in dazzling robes. The women were terrified. You would be too. And they bowed with their faces to the ground. And the men asked, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. (laughs) All right. Sorry. I got another cheesy joke. You ready? Joseph of Arimathea, I heard. You know, the wealthy Pharisee I told you earlier. It was his tomb that Jesus was buried in. I heard they asked him, Joseph, why did you build such a beautiful, custom-made tomb, you know, only to give it to somebody else to be buried in? And Joseph said, it's all good. He only needed it for the weekend. (laughs) That's the punchline, folks. God is dead. April fools. He is risen. The devil thought that this, the devil must have been really surprised. He, he had never seen a real resurrection before. He, he thought the chains of death would be enough, sufficient to hold the Son of God. But he just got a rude awakening, friends. Satan just got pumped. Death just got dissed. The grave just got robbed. Whose line is it anyway? It's God's line, and he's got the last laugh. When Jesus rose from death, some of you um, think that the reason the stone was rolled away was to let Jesus out. When Jesus rose from death, we we see this from the other resurrection accounts and appearances of Jesus, where he... There's no physical barrier that can stop him from going through, right? So he he appears in the middle of the room (laughs) where his disciples are gathered trying to hide, right? No walls can keep Jesus trapped or captured or confined. So don't think that the stone was rolled away to let Jesus out. Folks, The stone was rolled away so that you and I could enter in and respond to the revelation that he is alive. He moved the stone so that he can move you from your reservations to his revelation. Your reservations will tell you, no, 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 don't. You don't need to buy all this stuff, dude. You need more evidence to believe. You need to to see more in order to believe. That's what your reservations will say. But But his revelation will tell you. The revelation of his resurrection tells you 
Come on in. I invite you to believe so that you can truly begin to see. You might be thinking, Pastor, you don't know the stuff I'm going through, man. This stuff is no laughing matter. I've been in crisis. I've been struggling. It's difficult, man. The world is falling apart around me. And listen, we're not laughing at your issues. We're not laughing at the suffering that you're experiencing today. I'm not saying laugh your problems away. I'm not saying cover it up with laughter. I'm not saying deny it. What I am saying this morning is this. God invites you to laugh with him over death. The death, the difficulty, the, the discouragement of your situation. He invites you to come up for air and breathe in the fresh wind of his Holy Spirit, who is the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Will you join the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, in holy resurrection laughter? Because, folks, resurrection is how all of this ends. Death doesn't have the final word. Satan doesn't ultimately win. Hell, sin, hopelessness, despair, shame, fear, and everything that has kept you as a barrier from God's goodness, everything that has kept you doubting the goodness of God, all of that will not prevail. God has the last laugh. Tell the person next to you, he's got the last laugh. He's got the last laugh. It's called the resurrection of Jesus. (laughs) So where does this leave us today? For most of you in this room who call New Life Home, you, you just need to be reminded in a powerful way this morning that the resurrection of Jesus is the anchor of your spiritual identity. You know, as he says in Romans, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. You're free. You're free from sin's power. You know what that is? That's, I can't seem to kick this sinful tendency. You're free from that power. You have a choice now. It says, since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. Watch this. So what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? So you should also Consider yourself to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? I'll tell you who you are. And some of you need to be reminded, you are dead to sin. You are alive with the life-giving Christ and you are dead to the power of sin today. So now, go and live like it. Go and live like it. Yes. Others of you have placed or have never placed your faith in Christ to redeem you. Or maybe you grew up hearing somewhat this vague message of the need to have God near you. But today you're realizing you don't don't need him just near you. It's not about you having God in your life. It's about you putting your life into him. It's about you entering into that empty tomb and in faith and worship saying, Jesus, take my whole life now. I put my faith in you. Maybe you're 
still seeking or searching or trying to figure out how to make life work for you and how to, how to make God sort of, you know, the new and improved app on your spiritual iPhone. Because I, I can just turn this one on. This one's really great. No. Listen. To be born again, to be born anew, to be in a relationship with the life-giving Christ is truly eternal life. And it begins now. But in order to do that, in order to have the guarantee that you will live with Christ now and even after death, that you indeed will also conquer death in order, just like he conquered death, in order for you to experience that now and after death, which we like to call the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said you must be born again. You must be born anew. You must give your whole life, your whole heart, your whole being completely to the Savior. And I feel like today some of you have, maybe for you there's some gaps. There's still some questions that needing, needing to be answered. And that's fine. You know, there's this powerful story that I read. It was a true story that came from a book called The God Who Hung on a Cross. It was written by a journalist named Ellen Vaughn, and she tells this story about how the gospel penetrated a small village in Cambodia back in 1999. What happened was this pastor was sent to this uh, province in northern Cambodia, and throughout that whole region, that region was mostly Buddhist, or it was mostly like animists, like people prayed to, you know, uh, spirits and things like that. And when this pastor arrived in this region, he was so surprised when he entered one small village where uh, a, an old lady came up to him and said to him, Pastor, we've been waiting for you. Because you see, he had already begun sharing the gospel and this woman realized, oh, this is it. She came up to him and said, Pastor, we've been waiting for you for 20 years and he's like, what, really? Like, you're the only village that's been receptive to my message, to the gospel in this whole region. And she says, oh, let me tell you the story of what happened. And she tells him the story of the God who hung on the cross. You see, back in the 1970s, the Khmer Rouge, which was a you know, brutal communist-led communist regime. You remember the killing fields, right, in Cambodia? They took over Cambodia, and they destroyed everything in, in their path. They decimated villages, killed people. Left and right, they forced villagers to dig their own graves and they would bury them and execute them and bury them in those graves. They did that to this village. And the story goes, when the Khmer Rouge came through, they lined up all the villagers, made them dig their own graves and lined them up right in front of those open holes. And at that moment, there was just deep, deep, just sadness and sorrow and panic that went through the, the crowd. You could hear some of the, um, the villagers calling out, crying out desperately to Buddha or, or crying out desperately to the spirits, the animistic spirits, the demon forces that they had worshipped. But one, one lady could be heard crying out to the God who hung on the cross. And that's because when this lady was a girl, her mom told her the story about the God who hung on the cross. And in the moment where she was about to experience deep pain and suffering and death, she remembered that story. And she, she reasoned in her head, 
maybe if this God who hung on a cross, maybe he knows what I'm going through right now. I'm going to call out to him. And so she started calling out to the, praying to the God who hung on the cross, the God who hung on the cross. And for some mysterious reason, everyone started, it was like contagious. The whole village that was facing their own graves started crying out to the God who hung on the cross. And, and, and miraculously, they're weeping and they're wailing. As it began to die down, they turned around and the soldiers that had made them dig their graves were all gone. They didn't even know where they went, why they went, why they left, and they never came back. Now watch this. This is all this woman knew. The God who hung on the cross delivered us from death. 20 years later in September of 1999, a pastor walks into the village, preaches the gospel about how Jesus died and was risen. And she comes up to him and says, Pastor, we want to hear the rest of the story. I can't help thinking that some of you are here today needing to hear the rest of the story. So I want to take a moment to pause before we close our time. And I'm going to, I know many of you in the overflow room right now have been listening patiently. And I believe the Lord is at work in, in that overflow, overflow room right now as well. And I want to turn this over to Pastor Mike and Christina who are in the overflow room. And they're going to pray with you and minister to you as well. So at this time, for all of us here in this room, I want to know if there is anyone here who may have been thinking, man, I've been living life. I know about religion. I know about God. I know about all this in my head. But it doesn't look like God has quite come through for me. There's something missing to the story. I'm here to tell you today that that gap does not need to exist anymore. Christ is risen. And while you may still be looking for life's meaning and purpose, I'm here to tell you that the risen Christ and the fact of the resurrection ensures that everything in this life is going to turn out good if you place your trust in Christ. Yes, you're going to walk through pain. Yes, you're going to walk through suffering. I'm not here to tell you that if you receive Jesus today, everything is going to be nice and fun and dandy and, you know, it's going to be a bed of roses, right? No. But the resurrection tells us that not only is Jesus alive today, but that he is in the process of making all things new. All things new. And today, maybe the answer you really need for your search today is found in the hands of the risen Christ, in the scars of the risen Christ. Some of you don't know what to do with your, with your wounds. I'm here to tell you today. The Lord's here to tell you today that he can turn your wounds into scars. And yeah, you'll have the scars. Jesus had the scars. They might not ever go away, but they're no longer wounds. They're scars. Where are you today in your, your, your life with God? It matters. And today, you might be saying, you know what? Pastor, I, I think I'm, I'm good because, you know, like, my parents raised me in a, in a good Christian home. Well, that's good. 
But it doesn't say that you're going to make it to heaven if you were raised in a good Christian home. And you say, oh, pastor, I, I'm pretty good. I haven't obeyed all the, real, I haven't committed any major sins. You know, those major ones like murder and whatever, you know. I haven't done any of that. It doesn't matter. Just because you didn't commit major sins doesn't guarantee that you're going to get into heaven or that you're going to even have eternal life now. You see, Pastor, I grew up in church. I believe in Jesus. So do the demons, and they shudder. It's not a belief in Jesus that says, I believe he exists. I believe that all that's really good. It's a kind of belief that says, if you really believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is alive and raised from the dead, then his claim to divinity is real and true, and everything he says about reality is really the way it is, then you have a choice. You can either stand at a distance and say, that's a great philosophy amongst all the other philosophies that I've been exposed to. How do you know which one's true? Well, everybody's truth is their own truth. Whatever truth you want it to be, it's their truth. No. Stick around for can I ask that, because we're going to answer the question, how can Jesus claim to be the only way? How can he have an exclusive claim? We're going to answer that question. But for today, to believe in Jesus means you actually, if I believe this thing can hold me up, then I'll lean on it. I'll even stand on it, but I, you know, that would make me look like a fool. <laughs> you say, Pastor, I've been through a lot, and I feel like I love God. However you feel about God, makes no difference when it comes to entering into the kingdom of heaven. You have to make a choice. You have to make a decision. And so this morning, we're here in this safe place, a place where you're surrounded, some of you with family and friends. And I want to ask you a question. I want to invite you to make a, a decision. And I, I want to say it this way, that in a few moments, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. And, you know, the lights are going to be on. It's going to be bright in here. But you're in a safe place. And you're not raising your hand for me. You're raising your hand before the Lord. And I'm going to ask you if you are here today and you want and you don't know that you've actually made a decision to follow Jesus, put your faith and trust in Jesus, you want to do that. Or, or, maybe you did in years past, but you know you didn't quite live the how you know God wanted you to live, or, and, and you kind of maybe have a little bit of guilt over that, and, and listen, put that behind you. What matters is today, the Lord invites you to step into the empty tomb. Whether you did it before, or whether you're doing it for the first time today ever, he invites you. And we ask you to raise your hand if you want to enter into eternal life by putting your faith and trust, by giving your whole heart to Jesus. When I, when I count to three, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. So who should raise their hand? If you've been running from God instead of towards God, you need to raise your hand. It's time to come home. It's time to start laughing again with God over death and sin. You know, if... If you've just, if it's just been about going through the motions of going to church, you know, in and out and just running that religious treadmill that you do because you're trying to respect your family or whatnot, then you need to raise your hand if you want the authentic, 
eternal, life-giving relationship with Jesus today. Because when you do, the Bible promises that his spirit comes into your life and you're not on your own anymore. You can live the new life we just talked about in, in Romans, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You know what that means? It doesn't mean you just, it doesn't mean you just avoid sin. That it doesn't mean you just overcome sin. It means that you can live the real, true purpose of your existence. Resurrection life promises that. So, if you're here, Thank you for listening to audio from New Life Foursquare, located in Harbor City and Norwalk, California. Feel free to make copies of this audio to share with others, but please do not charge for those copies or change the content in any way without permission. For more information, you can visit us online at newlifefoursquare.org.